mold in army barracks. It's an enduring health and morale problem. Now two soldiers invented a solution to preventing mold in the first place. They won an Army Innovation Award. Now the Army is testing their solution in barracks. It uses Internet of Things technology. For details, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke with Dragon's Lair 8 award winners, Army First Lieutenant Chris Alaperti and Private Sal Ez. Generally, companies will use these types of like IoT solutions to indicate, is there a door open? Is something failing in the HVAC unit? Is a temperature off for this reason, uh, this, that, and the third? The temperature and humidity is just a really good place to start. And so we looked at commercial solutions. Uh, think of a, a Google Nest thermostat, something along those lines. Very expensive, not customizable to our exact use case, and not always backwards compatible with some of the Army infrastructure. So since we had recently established this innovation center here, at the time it hired uh, Sal, our lead software engineer, we decided to try to build something ourselves so that we would have control. We could get it to customize to the way that our specific users at Fort Stewart would want to use it uh, and then could design it in a way that's scalable and compatible with all the Army infrastructure. Okay, so then what happened? Between October and January, we started whiteboarding out some designs. Uh, We worked with our current partner at the Innovation Center, the Civil Military Innovation Institute. Uh, We're able to procure funding for prototypes of ideas that soldiers have. So that enabled us to build the first prototype of MCAT, which were 27 sensors that went across uh, nine different barracks rooms. So the way it's set up is there's one hub, as we called it in the room, which has a little screen on it that'll display the reading from three different sensors that are placed in what were identified as kind of hot spots in the room for mold growth. These sensors communicate back to the hub. The hub uses the Wi-Fi that the commercial Wi-Fi that's available in the barracks that soldiers use for, you know, Xbox or play on their computer. It leverages that network to talk back to a website that Sal developed. You developed all this hardware, all the software, and this website that now exists uh, where anybody can go on from their personal advice, log on and see the active temperature and humidity conditions in that room. Uh, so in less than three months, we're able to get that out into nine barracks rooms. We learned some lessons from the first batch and recently did a full redesign and made 144 of this version two sensor hub combination that we have and are currently rolling it out into an entire building in our second brigade, hoping to get it in there and get some feedback before they deploy in a few months. After you got the award, you started the beta testing with the nine nine rooms with three sensors in a room. Is that right? So no, that was well before. Yeah, so it was actually before. The competition came up kind of adjacent to us working on it. So we were doing this uh, regardless of if there was a competition. We saw how much work the division was putting into trying to take care of soldiers, trying to improve their lifestyle, the living conditions in the barracks, and we're just trying to to do our part with it. And it just happened that it was at a, a good level of development to present at a competition like this. We had a couple slides made already that we used to present to people when they come to the Innovation Center and threw something together and submitted for this competition. At the time of the competition, we had just finished building all 144 of the version two sensors and we're just starting to roll it out into the barracks for this larger beta test. Uh, went there, did the competition, and then since then we've been continuing to roll that out. Who measures, who looks on the website and checks the humidity in the, in the different rooms that you're using? So ideally, the, 
there's kind of two sets of users of it or three. It could be the soldier living in the room. They can be proactive and fix it without it ever elevating outside of the room. They may be unaware of the conditions. They can say, why is it hot and humid? Oh, it's because I duct tape over my vent because I didn't like the noise. Fix the problem right there. The non-commissioned officers in our formation, so the soldiers, team leaders, squad leaders, platoon sergeants, first sergeants, are the ones generally responsible for the direct welfare of the soldiers. So they would be going and doing physical inspections of the barracks rooms daily, weekly. Uh, This now allows them to multiple times a day access it from their phone and go do more pointed inspections when they notice an issue. Then when we started working with DPW, that's kind of the third user of this, uh, they have dedicated mold teams that have been going around and remediating these mold problems as soon as they occur. The team can now access this app in the morning and kind of triage their work for the day and go take a look at the rooms that are out of tolerance. What did you make with a with a 3D printer? Inside of these are the actual you know, hardware components. So Sal designed all of this, and then we needed something nice to put it in. Our makerspace manager who works for the Civil Military Innovation Institute designed these cases that properly house all the hardware and allow us to just keep it protected from soldiers and attach it to walls in the barracks. So are there three of those little boxes in each room, or does that box have three sensors in it? Nope. So there's three of these sensors, and these run on a battery. So these can run for up to a year. We designed them that way, figuring that a a major use case of this will be when a unit deploys. There's less people around to inspect each room. So they need kind of all all the help they can get. We don't want soldiers coming back from doing their job overseas to nine months to not living in perfect conditions. So this uh, will allow a team to you know, monitor for hopefully the entire nine months up to a year. And there's three of these around the room. Depending on the different configurations of the barracks, they're in different places. There's four or five different models of barracks on Fort Stewart and Hunter Army Airfield. Uh, but generally, you know, one by the door, one in the middle of the room, one near the bathroom is kind of how it's laid out. And then this hub would be plugged into the wall, displaying on the screen the readings from these different sensors. And then this is actually connected to the internet to communicate back to the app. And then how does the battery get charged? So the battery can be recharged by being plugged in. could also be charged off of the hub. And you could also remove the battery. You can open it up. And if you have a pre-charged battery, you can replace it too that way. So you got options. So if a soldier's on a long-term deployment, will someone go into their room to check the battery? If necessary. Again, ideally, it'll last for a year. So we assume at least a majority of the batteries will perform the way they should and they won't have to go in and get changed. But on the, the app, it'll give you a low battery indicator. So the way we program that, you should still have multiple weeks after the low battery comes up. But if it's worked into the DPW workflow or whoever's going to be managing these barracks while they're gone, to be checking the app every morning and seeing which rooms are in the kind of danger zone for mold, they can also go in and quickly recharge those batteries. It should only take a a couple hours of being plugged in to fully recharge those batteries. How did the two of you start working together on this project? Lieutenant Al Purdy? We're both infantrymen by trade. So I was an infantry platoon leader in one of the battalions here with an engineering background. So I got to get pulled up and and start this. And then you want to say the program you did? Yeah. So um, I uh, essentially got sort of scouted into this program where I was essentially kind of outsourced to a JSOC Joint Special Operations Command for after doing three months of training with a with a private company and then developing applications with them for six months and then I essentially had to repay about a year or so uh, amount of time to either back to the division or to the core at Fort Bragg 
And so I just came here to pay back the, all the training I got and whatnot. Private as what was the training you got specifically? So I did three months of direct actual like software training with a company called Galvanize out of uh, Colorado online. And then following that, I uh, did a sort of internship with uh, JSOC. And did you have a software background before you joined the army? Uh, yes, I did. So like all the hardware stuff uh, came from like just hobbyist type stuff uh, before joining. Um, I, I did study it a little bit uh, as well the, on the software side. Really all the hardware stuff just came from from stuff I knew before joining. But a lot of the integrated, more advanced software stuff came after uh, utilizing it within the Army. Lieutenant Alperti, how about you? What was your background? So I don't have any uh, formal software training at all. I have a bachelor's degree in mechanical and aerospace engineering and a master's in biomedical engineering. So kind of just generic engineering knowledge and project management. This is 99% Sal's work. just happens uh, in our lab here and it's become one of our, our bigger projects. Terrific. And so moving forward, how many rooms do you have sensors in now? So when all 144 of those sensors are out, it'll be 36 rooms, a full building in second brigade. About half of those are equipped right now. And those are all barracks rooms. Those are all barracks rooms. Yes, ma'am. There's no reason why this can't eventually be put in housing, you know, any barracks on the installation or any barracks across the army, really. The most pointed application we saw was the barracks rooms. The soldiers that are out there doing the hard work every day deserve to have the best living conditions. And we saw how much work the the rest of the division was putting into trying to correct this problem. So that's kind of the first batch of uh, rollouts we're trying to do. Do you have any idea how much each sensor unit costs? Yeah, so these are still prototypes. So they're all built off of this components you can buy on Amazon. All in, they cost about... 15 and $20 respectively. What we're working on right now is redesigning it in a way where it's it's all one compact circuit board. So instead of having various components that we had soldiers in here welding them together or soldering them together by hand, it'll be scaled and manufacturable. At that point, it should cost more in the neighborhood of $10 per sensor. So are you all going to go apply for a patent on this? Um, There's talks. Yeah, we're working through some of the Army systems for that right now. We uh, have to submit an IP review through, I believe it's Army Features Command. We're we're slowly working on, we're trying to you know, get it to a point where we know it's the final product before we, we do all that paperwork. Army First Lieutenant Chris Alaperti and Private Salem Ez speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way. That's sort of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.